Welcome to our continuing educational webinar series. I am Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business, a hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility, and we help manage every aspect of a compliance program and our training library provides hundreds of modules that are easy to assign and track. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. <clears throat> we are so pleased to have Rachel V. Rose, JD, MBA, a principal with Rachel V. Rose, Attorney at Law, PLLC, Houston, Texas, with us today. Ms. Rose has a unique background having worked in many different facets of healthcare, securities, cybersecurity, as well as international law and business throughout her career. Her practice focuses on a variety of cybersecurity, healthcare and securities issues, securities law issues related to industry compliance and transactional work, as well as representing plaintiffs in Dodd-Frank False Claims Act whistleblower claims. <clears throat> In addition to being extensively published and a sought-after presenter and quoted expert, Ms. Rose holds an MBA with minors in healthcare and entrepreneurship from Vanderbilt University and a law degree from Stetson University College of Law, where she graduated with various honors, including the National Scribes Award and the William F. Blues Pro Bono Service Award. Ms. Rose is licensed in Texas and is admitted to practice before all state courts, as well as the United States Supreme Court and the District Court for the District of Columbia and all four federal court districts in the state of Texas. She is a fellow of the Federal Bar Association, and currently she is the chair of the Federal Bar Association's Government Relations Committee, a board member of the Federal Bar Association's Key Tom section, the co-editor of the American Health Lawyers Association Enterprise Risk Management Handbook. Wait, sorry. The co-editor of the American Health Lawyers Association's Enterprise Risk Management Handbook for Healthcare Entities, Second Edition, as well as co-author of the books The ABCs of ACOs and What Are International HIPAA Considerations. She has been named consecutively to the Texas Bar College, the National Women Trial Lawyers Association's Top 25, and Houstonia Magazine's Top Lawyers for Healthcare. In 2019, she was also named to the National Trial Lawyers Association's Top 100, as well as First Healthcare Compliance's 2019 Top Presenter. Ms. Rose is also an affiliated member with the Baylor College of Medicine's Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy, where she teaches bioethics. See www.rvrose.com for additional information. Before we begin, I would like to mention at First Healthcare Compliance, we strive to serve as a trusted resource for compliance professionals, and every month we celebrate their hard work and dedication with our Compliance Super Ninja recognition. Today, our team is turning the spotlight on Super Ninja Sharon Miller, Administrator at Gulf Coast Dermatopathology Laboratory. Sharon says, patient care is paramount, and by creating a culture of caring, compassion, and respect, we have succeeded in all that we do. 
We try to promote a family atmosphere, which in turn translate to ultimate patient care. Congratulations, Sharon. Our team is honored to have the privilege of working with you. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. So Rachel, so very happy to have you here. Welcome, thank you for being here today. Oh, Catherine, thank you for having me. I always love the collaboration with First Healthcare Compliance. And for our audience, I hope everyone has a prosperous uh, 2022 and learn something from this fun webinar we have planned today. Great, thank you so much. Looking forward to it. Okay, so shall I begin? Yes, we shall, thank you. You're welcome. So today I'm going to be focusing on a healthcare hot topic and it relates to the No Surprises Act and specifically out of network charges and some regulatory changes. As we know, no presentation is complete without a disclaimer. The information presented here today is not meant to constitute legal advice, so be sure to consult your attorney for advice on a specific situation. The information presented is current as of the date of the original recording of the presentation, and given the dynamic nature of the topic, participants are encouraged to check the relevant government websites for the most recent information. So today I'm going to begin with a history of healthcare industry billing, coding, and claims. And in fact, it's very relevant to what's at issue in the No Surprises Act. From there, I'll delve into the interim final rules, some balance billing and out of network billing in terms of who it applies to, as well as the process for the IDR, which we'll find out a little bit more about. I will end, as I usually do, with some risk mitigation and compliance tips. So hopefully there's something in here for everyone. So let's begin with the U.S. Health in industry and an insurance overview. Some of the fundamentals of billing, coding, and claims. I was a history major in undergrad and I always find it fascinating when I begin to delve into how a system evolved. And as many of you may know, there's a quote that says, in order to know where you're going, you have to know where you've been. So I'm going to begin with the evolution of the U.S. healthcare system and really connect it to what's going on today before we delve into the No Surprises Act. So if we go back to the 1900s, Teddy Roosevelt was president and the United States was entering into what became known as the 
progressive era. Now, what's important during this time is that employers were liable for injuries that occurred at their facilities if the employer was negligent. And that really hasn't changed today. So between 1910 and 1915, 32 states enacted workers' compensation insurance. And under these programs, employers accepted full liability for workplace injuries and could buy insurance coverage through their state. Now, if employers purchased workers' compensation insurance, they retained all three legal defenses against negligence. This is when we begin to see organized medicine being supported in conjunction with workers' compensation legislation, which apparently was done under the view that injured workers would go to their family doctor for care and that the doctor would be paid by the workers' compensation fund. However, over time, employers began to directly retain and sometimes employ physicians to provide care. And that's a trend that we've seen over time. Healthcare, like most industries, is cyclical. And so we've seen an emergence of ERISA plans on the one hand, and then larger companies in particular retaining physicians as part of their corporation to provide care, and then others having specific physicians that they contract with to handle workers' compensation claims. So all of this background is relevant because it affected the design of what we have now in terms of our health insurance plans. If we jump ahead to World War One, in the period leading up to and following this particular World War, a number of state initiatives proposed compulsory health insurance based on the workers' compensation model. And one plan promoted by the American Association of Labor Legislation called for coverage of all manual laborers with an income of less than $100 per month for medical bills and lost income. Now, this is decidedly different from what we saw in other nations throughout the world where the component of payment really was derived uh, through the government. Here we see the United States taking a different route. And that's something that's important too as we get into the No Surprises Act. So compulsory contributions from the employee, the employer, and the state government would be included. Well, this should look somewhat similar to what we have now. And between 1916 and 1919, 16 states considered such legislation. However, none adopted it. So employers tended to oppose the legislation because unlike workers' compensation, it did not have any offsetting reduction in costs. And the labor unions had mixed views. Labor unions, especially in this period of time, carried a lot of weight, and they still do today, but not in the same manner that they did in this period of our nation's history. Samuel Gompers, who you may be familiar with, founded the American Federation of Labor, or the AFL. He was opposed. He believed that workers knew how to spend their money and that the role of the union was to get them more money to spend. 
The American Medical Association officially favored this legislation in 1915, but opposed it by 1920, arguing that the insurance interfered with the doctor-patient relationship. So the U.S. health care system continues through the Great Depression, and local hospitals were affected by the Depression just like other firms and other businesses. So a retrospective look back in 1979, Ronald Numbers reported that between 1929 and 1930, Baylor University Hospital, then in Dallas, saw its receipts drop from $236 to $59 per patient during the depression. Occupancy rates dropped from 71.3% to 64.1%, and contributions were down by two thirds, while charity care by way of contrast was up 400%. So the numbers weren't balancing out. Justin Kimball, the administrator of Baylor University Hospital, then devised a means for people to pay for hospital care. And he enrolled 1,250 Dallas public school teachers into the Baylor plan. So for 50 cents a month, he promised to provide 21 days of care in his hospital. But because of AMA opposition to insurance plans, the plan only covered the hospital and not physician services. Again, this is important as we look ahead to Medicare and the way that Medicare is parsed out. The model soon spread to other hospitals, and in 1932, a plan was established in Sacramento, California. Unlike the Baylor plan, however, which covered services at only a single hospital, the Sacramento plan covered services at any hospital in the community. So again, a network, which is what we see today, especially with our PPO and HMO plans. By 1933, 26 such hospital services plans were in operation. So that was on one side of the United States. By way of contrast, in New York, we had a slightly different outcome. Most states viewed the new hospital service plans as the prepayment of hospital services rather than as insurance. In 1933, the New York State Insurance Commissioner determined that the plan should be viewed as insurance. This logic was clear because the plans collected payments in advance and promised to provide care at some future date, not unlike life or casualty insurance. The upshot of this ruling was that the new health plans were required to comply with existing insurance laws. And as we know, insurance laws typically designate to the individual state. So particularly, they had to have reserves in order to meet future claims. This is something that was re-emphasized with the passage of the Affordable Care Act, and the reserves were one of the issues, especially with the enrollment and the requirement that individuals have health insurance, whether or not they got it through the exchange. So the state legislature was called on to resolve the dispute, and it created special enabling legislation that specified that these 
service benefit plans, specifically Blue Cross plans, which everyone I'm sure is familiar with, would be nonprofit and exempt from reserve requirements and state premium taxes. Now, the reserve requirements have changed uh, significantly over time because of the evolution of our insurance industry for healthcare. Blue Shield, the development of Blue Shield plans mirrors that of Blue Cross. The first medical service plan analogous to hospital service plans was in California and that was established in 1939. And there were two key features. First, it required free choice of a physician. And second, they were indemnity rather than service benefit plans. So this meant that the plans paid the patient a dollar amount for each covered event. The patient in turn was responsible for paying the physician. HMOs are very significant and I'm going to begin in 1973 and then move back in time. So the Health Maintenance Organization Act is a United States federal law that was actually signed by then President Richard Nixon in 1973. Its aim was to promote HMOs and set standards for these organizations. Ironically, the earliest known example of an HMO in the United States dates back to 1910. And it wasn't Kaiser Permanente, which I often hear, but it was a clinic in Washington state that offered mill owners and their employees medical services for a fixed per month payment. So later in 1929, again, during the Great Depression, the Ross Luz Medical Group stationed in Los Angeles started to provide services to state managed organizations and their employees as well. So if we look at Kaiser in particular, we need to look at World War II. So when World War II came to an end, the shipyard workforce fell from 90,000 to just 13,000 employees in only a few months. Only about a dozen of the 75 members of the medical group remained. So what Dr. Garfield wanted to do was keep practicing this new form of healthcare delivery and Kaiser wanted to continue the plan as well. So in July of 1945, the Permanente Health Plan officially opened to the public and in 10 years, enrollment surpassed over 300,000 members in Northern California alone. Now, during these early years, the success of the health plan was largely the result of support from unions. So if we recall a few slides ago, the unions were opposed to these types of plans in and around 1915 through World War I, but then eventually after World War II, they came around. And two unions, the International Longshore and Warehouse Union and the Retail Clerks Union were the driving force behind bringing the health plan to Los Angeles. So in 1953, the names of two entities, the health plan 
and the hospitals were changed from Permanente, which some felt had little meeting outside the organization, to Kaiser, which had high recognition nationally because of Kaiser Industries and Henry J. Kaiser himself. So the medical group actually chose to keep the Permanente name to in part to clarify that they were not employees of Henry J. Kaiser. So the organization currently known as Kaiser Permanente was born and it is still based on a closed corporation between three entities, the nonprofits, Kaiser Foundation Health Plan, Kaiser Foundation Hospitals, and the Permanente Medical Groups. So we've gotten through the 1950s and in the 1960s, the debate which had been going on for quite some time finally gained traction and was passed. So on July 30th, 1965, then President Johnson signed into law the bill that led to Medicare and Medicaid, as many of you know, the Social Security Act. So the original Medicare program included Part A, which is hospital insurance, and Part B, which is medical insurance. Today, these two parts are called original Medicare. As we'll see, we now have Part C and Part D, but it wasn't until 2003 that those even entered the vernacular of the Medicare landscape. More people have become eligible, and one critical example of the expansion of services was actually in 1972, when Medicare was expanded to cover the disabled people with end-stage renal disease requiring dialysis or kidney transplant, and people 65 or older that select Medicare coverage. More benefits like prescription drug coverage have been offered as well. As we know, prescription drug is Medicare Part D. So the prescription drug benefit program was very significant because the uh, Medicare Modernization Act is one of the biggest changes to Medicare since the program's inception in 1965. And also under the MMA, as I mentioned, private health plans approved by Medicare became known as Medicare Advantage plans. These are also referred to as Medicare Part C. Now, how the reimbursement to providers is calculated under Medicare Advantage plans is very different than through traditional Medicare. That's a whole other presentation in and of itself, but it's very important to appreciate that distinction. That's based on a risk score model and Medicare is typically not. The MMA also expanded Medicare to include an optional prescription drug benefit, which went into effect in 2006. So it's fascinating that the drug coverage for Medicare beneficiaries has only been around for 15 years, almost now going into 16 years. Another important part to remember is the Children's Health Insurance Program, also known as CHIP. That was created in 1997, around the time of the Balanced Budget Act, to give health insurance and preventative care to nearly 11 million, or one in seven uninsured American children. Many of these children came from under 
insured or uninsured working families that earn too much to be eligible for Medicaid. And since its inception, all 50 states, DC and US territories have CHIP plans. The Affordable Care Act was very significant because of the health insurance marketplace that I mentioned previously. And Medicare and Medicaid have also been better coordinated to make sure that people who have Medicare and Medicaid get quality services. It is not the norm for an individual to have both Medicare and Medicaid is normally there's means testing and different thresholds. This is especially true in the population under 65 who need to be clear, declared disabled to qualify for both Medicare and Medicaid. So a key feature of our healthcare system is the difference between HMOs and PPOs and POS. HMOs, as we know, are our health maintenance organizations, and they're often the cheapest, but are also the least flexible. And that's because they make use of the gatekeeper model, which requires a an HMO plan member to typically have to go through their primary care physician before they are able to see a specialist. Now, there are two items to be conscious of here. The first is that if it is an emergency situation, then you don't have to go through your primary care physician. And also, once you are established or if you go to the emergency room with the uh, say a blown out knee, which I happen to have had that happen in college, but was not on an HMO, just um, by way of analogy, so to speak. One item that's critical is that if you go in and you have a blown out ACL or you have a compound fracture, you can be treated there by an orthopedic surgeon. It is unlikely. And in fact, there were a lot of lawsuits which were filed regarding that interference with the doctor-patient relationship. But there are other situations and other times where yeah, plan approval may be needed, which is a separate category. This is also important because HMOs in particular have in-network and out-of-network, which is one of the hallmarks of the No Surprises Act. Likewise, preferred provider organizations or PPOs recently took over HMOs as the most common type of insurance plan. Unlike an HMO, subscribers to a PPO may see any doctor, physician, or other provider, but they pay less if they see a provider within the PPO's network, hence preferred. So that's another critical note on that front because we're talking in-network and out-of-network, and that is one of the cornerstones of the No Surprises Act, and in fact, what it addresses. Now we have a point of service, which is a slight variation on the HMO model. However, subscribers to a POS plan fulfill most of their medical needs in network, but are allowed to go out of network if they pay a higher fee. 
And for those of you who may be new to healthcare, an MCO is a managed care organization. And basically a healthcare provider whose goal is to provide appropriate cost-effective medical treatment. Two types of these providers are in fact HMOs and PPOs. So MCOs again are managed care organizations. So I swear no healthcare presentation would be complete without HIPAA and HIPAA does play a very critical role in claim submission specifically from the standpoint that it was actually HIPAA that the MPI the National Provider Identifier came into being. So that's one part of HIPAA. As we all know, an MPI number has to be put on any claim, whether it's for a government program or a private insurance program. Then we have the mandate that most claim transmissions be completed electronically. And this only gained momentum in light of the High Tech Act, which passed in 2009. And subsequently with the Affordable Care Act, the advent of the program formerly known as Meaningful Use, as I call it, and then other types of programs such as MIPS and MACRA, which are alternative models that physicians can participate in. So under the HIPAA regulations, standard transactions like claims are required to be submitted electronically. There are some exceptions and one practice uh, for example, a practice under 10 employees may use manual claims. However, this is uh, frowned upon as well. I will say that, as we know, as part of HIPAA from a cybersecurity standpoint, one has to have both a business continuity and a disaster recovery plan in place. And there is no doubt in light of the ransomware attacks that we've been hearing about, or extreme weather conditions where there may be a power outage, where your organization may need to revert to the use of manual claims. I recommend to my own clients having a provision in their policies and procedures that they have consulted with the insurers and government programs that they are contracted with to appreciate how to submit a manual claim if there is a an adverse event such as a ransomware attack a cyber attack a natural disaster or something along those lines this can have a very significant impact not only on the claims processing side of the equation but also on the documentation side, as we know, most states require that the designated health record be kept for seven years, and also the revenue cycle of a practice, a hospital, or the downstream impact on business associates as well. Also, a practice that has experienced a power outage may submit claims manually if those claims are time sensitive. But again, this is a broader issue and I would encourage you and your clients to reach out to their MAC, their Medicare audit contractor or a relevant representative from different insurance companies so that you have in your disaster recovery plan and business continuity plan exactly what to do in the event that your EHR goes offline or you cannot submit claims 
electronically. Another item is the claim form. So as we know, the two most common claim forms are form CMS 1500 and what's known as the CMS UB04 form, which is also known as CMS 1450 form. So these forms actually look alike and operate similarly, but they are not interchangeable. And that's important because although the UB04 form is based on the CMS 1500 form, it is used for hospitals and other facilities, while CMS 1500 forms are used for non-institutional healthcare facilities, private practices, etc. So this is important to put into your No Surprises Act policy and procedure because of the claim information that is included on these types of forms for claim submission. So when billing for traditional Medicare Parts A and B, billers will follow the same protocol for private third-party payers and input patient information, MPI numbers, procedure codes, diagnosis codes, price and place of service codes as they do under UB04 and a CMS 1500. And we can get almost all of this information from the super bill, which comes from the medical coder. But again, you want to make sure that you have a list of documents you would need in the event that you want to appeal a decision under the No Surprises Act. So that is one compliance tidbit there. So what about the No Surprises Act? Well, first and foremost, it was enacted as part of the Consolidated Appropriations Act. And the key concept is what is known as surprise billing. And this occurs when patients are unaware that the medical provider treating them is not associated with their insurer, potentially exposing them to fees higher than in-network rates. A typical example is when a patient is in the emergency room and they're seen by a physician who is not in their insurance company's network. Another example which may occur is you may go to a surgeon who's in your network, but then the surgeon may have an investment interest in an ambulatory surgery center that's not in your network and they refer you there. Well, under Stark Law, the physician needs to give you notice and there should be something posted on the wall in his office, his or her office, or on the discharge instructions from the ER and additionally a separate notice given so that you can, as a consumer, can make an informed choice and you're aware up front that there may be additional costs associated with the treatment if you go out of network to this particular ambulatory surgery center, for example, versus staying in network. So as a consumer, you always want to ask if this particular diagnostic facility, such as radiology or lab or ambulatory surgery center is in network or out of network. Currently in December 
2021, there were 17 states that did not offer any surprise billing protections. And since the No Surprises Act is not slated to go into effect until January of 2022, and millions of Americans will be vulnerable to surprise medical bills in the meantime, it's also important to note that treatment that would have occurred in December does not come under the umbrella of the No Surprises Act. So even though the act is in play, it can still have ramifications, almost like whenever ICD-10 came into effect. There were situations where a patient was in the hospital for part of ICD-9, and then when the effective date hit, the other part of the bill had to be done in ICD-10 vernacular in code. So think of this here because of the Americans who will still be dealing with their medical bills, typically from Q3 or Q4 of 2021, that don't have the same protections unless the states offer protections. So as of December 2021, those 17 states that did not offer any protections were Alabama, Alaska, Arkansas, Idaho, Hawaii, Kansas, Kentucky, Louisiana, Montana, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, South Carolina, Tennessee, Utah, Wisconsin, and Wyoming. So what about the Consolidated Appropriations Act that I mentioned? Well, it was actually signed into law on December 27th of 2020, and the citation is Public Law 116-260. And under Title I, we find the No Surprises Act. And I've highlighted sections 102 through 104 in particular. First, health insurance requirements regarding surprise medical billing, the determination of out-of-network rates to be paid by health plans, independent dispute resolution processes, and healthcare provider requirements regarding surprise medical billing. It's important to note that there is a section of the regulations that deals with self-pay as well. So that's something to be aware of if you accept self-pay, which most people do. Again, this is about consumer protections through a variety of different applications. And if we look at section 111 in particular, consumer protections through health plan requirements for fair and honest advance cost estimates. And again, that goes to uh, giving the consumer basically enough information to make an informed decision about being in network or out of network. And some of that is also incumbent on the individual. But in general, you need to make sure that you're doing everything you can as a provider as well. So the No Surprises Act amends the Public Health Services Act. The Public Health Services Act actually stems back to the 1940s, and I'm sure many of you are more familiar with it now than you ever have been because of the pandemic. It's the Public Health Services Act which enabled that state of emergency to be declared and the subsequent 
temporary and emergency measures to be issued by a variety of different government agencies, including but not limited to the United States Department of Health and Human Services. So the primary purpose of the No Surprises Act is again, preventing surprise medical bills. And it breaks down into a couple of different facets. First, coverage of emergency services. So for emergency services in general, if a group health plan or a health insurance issuer offering group or individual health insurance coverage provides or covers any benefits with respect to services in an emergency department of a hospital or with respect to emergency services in an independent freestanding emergency department as defined below, the plan or issuer shall cover the emergency services first without need for any prior authorization determination. And that's something again, that I mentioned from the outset with the history and the evolution of the US healthcare system and our different types of managed care organizations. B, whether the healthcare provider furnishing such services is a participating provider or participating emergency facility as applicable with respect to such services. And C, in a manner that if such services are provided to a participant, beneficiary, or enrollee by a non-participating provider or a non-participating emergency facility, the four bullets below basically say that the services will be provided at the in-network rate and without the requirement for prior authorization or any limitation on coverage that is more restrictive. Also, the cost-sharing requirement is not greater than the requirement that would apply if such services were provided by a participating provider or a participating emergency facility. So, such cost sharing requirements is calculated as if the total amount that would have been charged for such services by such participating provider or participating emergency facility were equal to the recognized amount for such services plan or coverage and year. So since we're into the winter months and a lot of people take advantage of the outdoors to go skiing or snowmobiling or things of that nature, oftentimes they travel to an area such as Colorado or Utah and they may not be from that area and they may need to use the hospital and emergency facilities in that area. Again, I just may have had some experience with this, but the key here is that regardless of where the care is, if I go in for a a knee issue that I've sustained while skiing. I don't need to get prior approval if I have an HMO or a PPO. They cannot balance bill me or charge me an exorbitant amount. And so my surprise element is 
mitigated very, very significantly. You have to read your plan though and your explanation of benefits to see exactly how that fits into these laws as well as your coverage in general for emergency services. So the No Surprises Act, as we know, prohibits the balance billing in the case of surprise medical bills for non-emergency services furnished by the out-of-network providers during a visit by a patient to an in-network facility. So that's critical. Unless the law's notice and consent requirements are met. And we already have this notice and consent requirement under Medicare where a notice needs to be given to the Medicare beneficiary if the provider knows, for example, that certain services are not going to be covered by Medicare, but they feel that it's in the best interest of the patient for them to get those services. So what would happen is that a notice is sent to the Medicare beneficiary explaining why the treatment um, is being encouraged by the provider and then that Medicare does not cover and that if they elect to move forward with this treatment that they will be uh, paying for it out of pocket. And so again, this concept is not new. You just have to make sure that you are adhering to it to a T or that's when a lot of residual negative lawsuits and issues with the government can flow as well. So as with the emergency services rule, out-of-network providers may only bill the patient the cost-sharing responsibility they would bear for similar covered services from an in-network provider. So again, that in-network of out and out-of-network keeps coming up. Another area that the No Surprises Act addresses is its application to air ambulance services. And I think all of us would admit that that has to be one of the most expensive types of emergency transport as well as emergency care available. And typically we see those in uh, trauma and severe accident situations. So where a health insurance plan generally covers any air ambulance services, the patient's cost-sharing responsibility is limited to the corresponding in-network amounts and the out-of-network air ambulance service provider may not balance bill the patient. So again, for those of you who may be new to healthcare, a balance bill is say the bill cost is $100 and your network covers $50 of that per year plan. The plan can then not balance bill you or the air ambulance services provider may not balance bill the patient for that remaining $50. It is vital to note that this does not include the usual types of payments that you have to make when you have insurance. And those are meeting your annual deductible, which is set forth in your plan, as well as any co-pays, both for pharmacy benefits and either surgical or physician visits as well. So again, you need to be reading those explanation of benefits to see what your co-pays and deductibles are in addition 
to reading what the plan covers in network and out of network. As we saw earlier, those point of service plans are distinguishable from our HMOs and our PPOs. So the departments, and I'll get to why it says departments and not department, which usually means Department of Health and Human Services when we're talking about healthcare, that ambulance services will be subject to the law's dispute resolution programs still to be developed in future lawmaking. So what about some cost sharing and payment methodologies? Well, first, the No Surprises Act provides that out-of-network providers, services, non-services at certain in-network facilities and air uh, ambulance services may not bill the balance, right? So we know that. The law generally states the amount the out-of-network provider will be paid in such circumstances. And the interim final rule specifies how insurers must calculate these amounts. So for patient cost sharing responsibilities, I've mentioned because this is critical. There are certain cost sharing responsibilities that are legitimate and legal and a patient is required to make them. And that's the deductible, the co-payment or the co-insurance payments for services to the corresponding in-network amount. So if we look in the case of emergency services and in surprise bill scenarios, the law expressly states that the patient's cost-sharing responsibility will be calculated based on the total amount that would have been charged for the services by an in-network provider or facility, an amount the law terms the, quote, recognized amount. So what is a recognized amount? First, an amount determined by an all-payer model agreement under the Social Security Act. If there is no applicable all-payer model agreement, an amount determined by a specified state law or if neither of the above apply, the lesser of the amount billed by the provider or facility or the qualified payment amount, which is referred to as the QPA. Now, ambulance services, air ambulance services are distinguishable in that the interim final rule provides that the recognized amount will be the lesser of the billed amount or the QPA. Now, the No Surprises Act also did a couple of other things. It developed parameters of the requirement that these protections to services provided at in-hospital, uh, in-network hospitals, including critical access hospitals, hospital outpatient departments, and ambulatory surgery centers. Importantly, urgent care centers are not included among the facilities covered for the purposes of non-emergency care. So hopefully when you walk into a supermarket or you walk into a Walgreens or a freestanding ER, there is a notice that this type of facility is not covered under the No Surprises Act. The departments explained that a visit to an in-network facility does not require the patient to set foot in the facility. And this is critical, especially in light of the pandemic. 
A visit includes furnishing of equipment or devices. So this could be through a durable medical equipment company, telemedicine services, imaging services, laboratory services, and pre and post operative services, regardless of whether these items are physically provided to the patient at the in-network facility. The interim final rule also clarifies that the available notice and consent exception that might otherwise permit an out-of-network provider to balance bill the patient is not available in the context of certain ancillary services. So again, you need to make sure that you're putting all of these nuances in your policies and procedures. So on July 13th of 2021, uh, HHS and other federal agencies published interim final rules. Specifically, these other federal agencies are OPM, the Office of Personnel Management, which is responsible for administering the Federal Employee Health Benefits Plan. This plan is actually the largest healthcare plan in the world, which is pretty fascinating. Internal Revenue Service, Department of Treasury, Employee Benefits, Security Administration, Department of Labor, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, and Department of Health and Human Services. The effective date was September 13th. However, the regulations really became applicable for plan years beginning on or after January 1 of 2022. The HHS only regulations also uh, become effective and applicable on January 1, 2022, and also OPM only is January 1, 2022, and we've already seen that date come to pass. A couple of items that are notable out of the Federal Register are that another study using claims for data from a large commercial issuer for the period 2010 to 2016 found that over 39% of emergency department visits to in-network hospitals resulted in an out-of-network bill. And this incidence increased from 32.3% in 2010 to 42.8% in 2016. The average potential amount of surprise medical bills also increased from 2020 in 2010 to $628 in 2016. And during the same period, 37% of inpatient admissions to in-network hospitals resulted in at least one out-of-network bill, increasing from 26.3% in 2010 to 42%. And the average potential surprise medical bill increased from 804 to over $2,000. So again, as we know, when we read the federal registers, there's often a lot of commentary that is put in to either respond to a particular a comment that was received by an individual who submitted a notice and comment, or it will be put in there to give context as to the purpose of the regulation and the public policy behind it. Again, what we see here is a disparity in health treatment for different socioeconomic classes and uh, certain populations, whether it was African-American or individuals in rural areas as well.
Additionally, 61% of individuals are confused by medical bills. And for 49% of individuals surveyed, the amount owed was a surprise. Well, I don't think this comes as a shock to anyone who's uh, on this webinar right now. And it's because we've all received medical bills. And especially if you've had treatment like surgery or you've been seen in the emergency room, it's not just your emergency room visit. Sometimes the emergency room physician is employed by the hospital. Other times they're an independent group. You then have the radiologist who may read a film. You might have labs which are billed separately. You might have a bill from a subspecialist such as a cardiologist or a trauma surgeon. All of those come at different times typically unless there's a, a value-based purchasing plan in place with a bundled payment but that oftentimes still does not cover everything and not every hospital is involved in that but needless to say regardless of one's educational level this can be a very uh, treacherous landscape to navigate and the emphasis on racial equity and support for underserved communities through the federal government, directing that as a matter of policy, the federal government should pursue a comprehensive approach to advancing equity for all, including people of color and others who have been historically underserved. I will say, and having taught bioethics for nine years, a reason why urban centers have the subspecialist is that, A, that's where we typically see our largest trauma centers, and B, the other part of that is that there are only a limited number of subspecialists, and they need to have access to those uh, very, very high level technologies and equipment. And by using the outlying areas with primary care as the focus, that way more people can in fact be treated by having centralized hubs, which really is what our major teaching hospitals serve, especially in major cities. So that's just something to be conscious of. I've read a lot of different books and different articles on racial equality and some of the rationale that's provided uh, in terms of, oh, we live in this rural area and we're, we don't have cardiologists or interventional cardiologists. Well, that's because the region itself cannot support a specialist like that alone. And it's imperative that those specialists are available to the largest number of people. And so by doing that, you are actually increasing the likelihood of advancing uh, equity and making sure that people have that conduit into these subspecialists. So that's just something to bear in mind, just because there's not a particular service or a particular specialist provided in a more rural area, for example, it does not mean that it necessarily equates to inequality. You have to put the resources where they can do the most good for the most number of people. And as we know, our cities in particular are very diverse in terms of uh, racial uh, mix and uh, socioeconomic mix as well. 
So what about the Federal Register? Well, going back to this, again, we have the Federal Employee Health Benefits Program. And here, each FEHB program contract must require a carrier to comply with provisions of the various sections of ERISA. In ERISA, you typically have what are known as self-funded plans, but most ERISA plans do contract with a third party such as Blue Cross Blue Shield in order to administer their plan. It's just that the self-funded plan is funded by that organization itself. So likewise, the provisions of these various sections of the PHS public health service apply to healthcare providers in the same way that they apply to participants, beneficiaries, or enrollees in group health plans or coverage offered by health insurance issuers. So we have been through a lot of these items and this is just a highlight. It applies to group health plans, health insurance issuers, the ERISA plans, FEHB programs, et cetera. Prohibits uh, non-participating providers, healthcare facilities, and providers of air ambulance services from balanced billing. Requires certain healthcare facilities and providers to provide disclosures. Again, this is key, but not new if you've been involved in healthcare for a while and you treat Medicare patients. Recodify certain patient protections that initially appeared in the Affordable Care Act and that the No Surprises Act applies to grandfathered plans. And lastly, set forth a complaints process and resolution process. Cost sharing, as we said, certain parts are okay. And the certain parts that are okay were the coinsurance, the copays, and the deductible. But it specifies that cost sharing amounts for such services furnished by non-participating emergency facilities and non-participating providers at participating facilities must be calculated again on these three options, which I delved into previously. We know about emergency services, but this is just up here for you to refer back to, and it's just stated a different way. Emergency medical condition, no, truthfully, no act that addresses emergencies can ignore MTALA, and this one does not either, because MTALA, as we know, requires a, an emergency room and hospital to treat and stabilize a patient regardless of their ability to pay. So again, you want to make sure that you understand what emergency medical condition means and that you're not placing the health of an individual or a pregnant woman or her unborn child in serious jeopardy, seriously impairing uh, bodily functions or serious dysfunction to bodily organ or parts. This definition does in fact include mental health conditions and substance use disorders. So I mentioned this independent dispute resolution process, which absolutely should be in your policies and procedures. And essentially the NSA does uh, three things as we know, but how do we go through the IDR? Well, first and foremost, here are the steps that are outlined in the Federal Register. The initiating party sends a required form with sufficient information to identify the dispute services. Again, you wanna make sure that you're keeping all of your master charges, that you have everything 
in order to make this type of dispute or to refute the dispute. Within 30 business days from the date the provider or facility receives initial payment or denial of payment. This 30-day open negotiating period enables the parties to negotiate an agreed rate by the last day, and if an agreement is not reached, then either party may initiate an IDR. To initiate IDR within four business days following the end of the open negotiation period, so essentially at day 34, a party submits a notice through the federal IDR portal, which is a public website maintained by CMS. From there, the initiating party must do the following, identify its preferred certified IDR entity and include material information about the dispute, including the qualifying payment amount. The QPA is basically the plan or issuer's median in network rate. Once the IDR entity is selected within 10 business days, the parties submit each a respective offer for a payment amount expressed both as a dollar amount and as a percentage of the QPA. A description of the party is also required, for example, a provider's practice size and specialty. Other information may also be submitted. However, there are also exclusions such as the Medicare fee schedule. Within 30 business days after the IDR's entity selection, the IDR entity must select one of the offers submitted and are required to choose the offer closest to the QPA unless additional material information on a variety of different subjects exists. So a couple just to round this all out, an ABA article that is very good addressed the phenomenon known as surprise billing in September of 2020. And of course, we saw the NSA pass in on December 27th of 2020. It was signed into law. So the surprise typically occurs when the patient obtains care and receives a balanced bill that is usually exorbitant. Examples of anesthesia and pathology balance bills exceeding $20,000 have been cited in legislative hearings and air ambulance charges in the six figures have been observed. So needless to say, these debts can be devastating. To understand what balance billing is and how it works is essential to understanding what it is not. Balance billing, again, is not the same thing as the patient deductible coinsurance or copay. However, in that example I gave you of the $100, that is what would be a balance bill. So as we round out the presentation today, you want to make sure that you review billing and claims processes, that you work with EHR vendors and your health insurers or government programs, update policies and procedures, and educate every workforce member. There's also one other item that you need to be aware of and that self-pay is also addressed. And although the term facility is defined, what is left out of that definition is long-term care facilities, skilled nursing facilities, 
uh, and assisted living facility. So that's something that is silent in the regulations. So whether or not it applies, they, we would need to see uh, how HHS or another government agency may opine on that. But typically, as we know, if it's not in the regulation, it's not covered. So with that, Catherine, I want to hand the floor back over to you and thank everyone for their time and attention here today. Thank you so much, Rachel. Uh, I really enjoyed this presentation. I loved um, hearing about the history and um, about this new, uh, the No Surprises Act. So thank you very much. And I'm sure our attendees have um, really enjoyed this quite a bit also and um, have learned some new information. So thank you. <clears throat> Welcome. Okay, so we do have a few questions. Um, the first one is what led to Congress passing this um, new, the No Surprises Act? So as the September 7th, 2020 ABA article indicates, and as we see being carried through into Title I, which is known as the No Surprises Act, it surprised billing and the shock of getting a bill, which is exorbitant. Okay, yes, and I liked your illustration about when you're on vacation and a lot of us do travel and of course, Skiing is a great example, and that's a risky sport, as both uh, you and I know, and some anything can happen. Or if you go to the beach and you're surfing or whatever, you know, something can happen. Who knows? And you don't want to, yeah, of course, some su surprise, awful bill to happen. So, okay, so let me see what the next question that we had come up was. Okay, are there any other types of services that are covered other than emergency services, such as non-emergency service from non-participating providers at participating facilities and things such as air ambulance service from non-participating providers. So it's kind of Absolutely. like opposite type of things. Absolutely, <laughs> and that's what, uh... I utilize the rule of threes uh, throughout this presentation because it's so important to appreciate that the no surprises bill not only applies to emergency settings, we also know that it does not apply to urgent care centers. So if you're going into an urgent care center, the law doesn't apply to those. We also know that if you go into a provider network and you're treated by a non in-network provider that that non-in-network provider cannot balance bill either. And then finally, as we saw and was articulated in the comments, as well as the ABA's article and quite frankly, a lot of legislative hearings or hearings before Congress, basically air ambulance surprise billing can be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. So yes, that is one reason that air ambulance services in particular were included as part of the No Surprises Act. So did you have any other words of advice or things you'd like to leave with us today? Just that I think one key is the policies and procedures and training of all of those individuals who are involved in this process 
because you need to have your plan B in terms of claim submissions, like I mentioned before, but also you wanna make sure that you've worked with your EHR and your claims clearinghouses to make sure that they have their systems set up so that they're not doing the balance billing as well. And finally, in those policies and procedures, making sure you have that IDR outlined as to who you want to use. You want to make sure you have the link to the CMS website in there that gives you that portal and that you have the dates and timelines in there so that you can check that off in the event that it needs to be utilized. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much. Attendees, please use the contact information on the screen for any questions. Or if you think of something later, you can send us questions and we'll forward them on to Rachel. Please remember your PACOM and PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. You can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc or at .com or call our phone number at 888-543-4778. And thank you, thank you, Rachel, again for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Catherine, for having me. And it's always my pleasure to collaborate with you in FIRST Healthcare Compliance. Thank you, it's, it's our extreme pleasure also. And thank you, attendees, also for, for joining us. Thank you. <laughs>